This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me once again is my friend and colleague, Dr. Stephen Phipps, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at Thorn Health Tech. So, hi, Stephen. Thanks for coming back. Uh, I know in the previous episode, you talked a little bit about uh, what got you into medicine and then into product design and that sort of thing. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your interest in plant medicine, botanicals. Yeah, no, I'd love to, you know, and so I think growing up, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors with my family, um, originally from Lake Tahoe, California. My family were big hikers and cross-country skiers. Uh, we moved to Florida and I spent a lot of time you know, wandering around uh, hiking the swamps and seeing lots of fun stuff like the, you know, carnivorous plants that are in mm-hmm. around certain Venus areas. Yeah, and bladder, you know, bladder rewards and, you know, um, all Fit, kinds of fun pitcher stuff. Pitcher plants, I remember and those. Pitcher plants, yep, those are all there, you know, and they're in, in just kind of trying and, and understanding that. And so that kind of got me into botany uh, to start. And so, um, you know, I went to the University of Florida and, and studied botany, really wanted to focus on ethnobotany, but along the way, just started to look at too, some of the compounds that are in plants and what they do. And so weirdly, one of those was in uh, integrated pest management, where we looked at what's called elicitor compounds. And so these compounds come from caterpillars or any other herbivores coming onto a plant and starting to eat it. Um, and it sends that, and then because these insects are what I would call messy eaters, some of that gets back onto the plant and the plant can recognize it and actually communicate with other plants around it. And it's not the same as cutting your lawn or anything like that. It's very specific. And so we found a few of those and the thing would be you can make uh, baits out of those instead of using pesticides to lure parasitoid wasps to come in and uh, mitigate any herbivory that be going on in your crops. And so that was my first foray into kind of the interaction with uh, the chemicals that are in plants and what they can do. And from there, just really took off into trying to understand that and went into uh, more of the ethnobotanical side and really getting a sense of how things like the bioflavonoids and polyphenols and and impact us um, on a human health level. And so spent time uh, still at the University of Florida doing my PhD, looking at, you know, that from the lens of how the it gets into your body, how, what your body may do to it, and then what it's going to end up doing for you, for your health. Now, I hear the term ethnobotany, which I'd like you to describe for our, our readers or listeners, sorry. Uh, but when I hear that term ethnobotany, I think of Sean Connery, like yeah. exploring yeah, the exactly. jungles of, of Africa, etc. Like wh- yeah. what exactly is ethnobotany about and yeah, how did so that give I think you a specialty? It was a really cool specialty, at least when I was, you know, like when I started reading about it to me um, and it was almost across, like you said, where it would almost be Indiana Jones, but one that like botanicals, right? And so some of that really came out of, uh, you know, Harvard. Um, back in the day with uh, individuals like Schultz and the like that were going out and doing exactly what you said. They were trying to understand the 
aspects of anthropology in culture and how those cultures all had medicinal systems. Uh, they had foodstuffs. They had all of these different things coming from plants and why, you know, and even if they were hundreds and thousands of miles apart, there seemed to be these systems set up and why and what are, what's in these plants that are allowing them to do that, right? And so it really did start out like you were mentioning where they went out into the jungles of various areas. They went out to the steppes in, um, in different areas or they went into, uh, you know, the islands in different, you know, um, tropical locations and looked at the interactions between humans and the plants around That sounds like the kind of job that everybody wants is like you get to go to the South Pacific, you know, and hang out with the indigenous peoples there and find out what they're eating and what do they do when they get a cut exactly you know, or what do they do if they have a headache you know or they're stressed they drink a little kava <laughs> yeah i mean that's i mean that, and that is one of those things that that was that it just seems like the greatest job so that's why i try to do it <laughs> that's why you want to do it <laughs> exactly and are, are people, are universities still offering ethnobotany programs? Is it still a big thing? Are people still going into that specialty or is it kind of died down a little it's, bit? It's it's waning, um, but it's, there's still an interest and a good of it. The, what is kind of spun from that is things like ethnopharmacology, where now it's trying to take it one step further and look at the key medicinal ingredients that may be in something versus the broader scope of botany itself. Um, and then there's another area, pharmacognosy, which is going even deeper and looking at not only the pharmacology around it, but also the analytical chemistry needed to get to that, right? Like, so taking fractions and running it through an NMR and getting a sense of the botanical fingerprint and then looking at how to extract it and control it. You know, a lot of that comes from the, you know, that aspect. And those are, I think, a little bit more around the areas there's a you know at least an you know american pharmacognosy society and those things um still around what this brings up for me is uh, one of my favorite compounds berberine which i've i've talked about on the podcast a number of times but in uh in digging into the research literature on berberine one of the things that really stood out is that almost every indigenous people around the globe uses at least one plant that's got berberine in it I don't know if that's entirely true or not, but I just saw that statement once and I thought, well, wow, it, you know, first of all, is that true? And if so, how do these, how do people figure out, you know, that this is going to be a good thing for whatever they're using for, for intestinal infections or the grip or something like that? Yeah, no, I know. And that's, um, it is interesting. And, you know, it, it may, I, I have to th say or think that at least got to be somewhat true, because if I look at even just, you know, the plants that we see it in, there's a huge diversity of that, right? So you've got for berberine, at least coptis is a big one that comes to mind um, with berberine and proto-berberines. You've got Oregon grape over in the Pacific Northwest that, you know, is teeming with uh, berberine and berberine-like compounds. We have it in our um, yard. It's a weed. Or exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, and then the other thing, you know, the one would be like, uh, you know, golden seal, right? <laughs> so, you know, now you're talking about, you know, areas in Eurasia, areas in, you know, farther into Asia, and then, you know, the Pacific Northwest all the way through Alaska and probably into Siberia. Like, that's a pretty big swath, right? All with berberine. Um, and so I think, over time, you know, if we look at how they figured it out, you know, I don't, I think it was mainly going to just be living in an area for so long and building a medical system, right? So if you look at these areas, each group, each culture, each kind of, you know, um, 
you know, group of people. They had their Materia Medica over time, yep. right? Or, yep. And that was the their collection. List of, their list of favorite herbs. Exactly. The collection of, you know, herbs, what they do, where they grow, when to harvest it. And so the, the old way of researching was trying a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people tried the wrong things along the way. <laughs> and, and paid the price. And paid the price, but also benefited their greater society to have some of these things. And so, yeah, so I think, you know, that was kind of the other cool part of it, because you then got to see the repetition within these materia medicas where the, the herb might be di the different, the way that they, you know, describe the reason to take it might be completely different, but then it's still targeting the same thing. So that's kind of cool. I remember years ago talking to a guy who was up in the uh, the Tetons or Yellowstone area, and he was studying grizzly bears, and he he noticed that when they came out of hibernation in the spring that there was a certain plant that they would eat and then they would seem to get violently ill like they would be puking and having the runs and all that kind of stuff and that would last for like a day and then they'd be fine and they did this every year so i think what what came out of that is he was saying i wonder if some of the native american the first nations people that lived there saw the bears doing this and wondered Maybe this is a good thing when you feel toxic to chew on this particular plant that's got obviously some kind of laxative or purgative in it. So they were, in other words, they were watching these animals do something. And as a result, they went, well, maybe this is something that would be helpful for human health as well. Oh, yeah. No, I think, you know, that's that is definitely one of the other areas where there was the, you know, the first rounds of scientists, so to speak, where it's, you know, taking an eye, you know, watching their environment and writing down notes and seeing the associations or, you know, that, that it's going on. And so I think, you know, even some of the aspects of, you know, early areas of, you know, shamanism came from the same thing, right, where they would watch, you know, the jaguar in the jungle eating some of these things that were a little bit hallucinogenic in nature. And that would be something that that would, they would stimulate their own medical system out of, uh, you know, so I think there is a lot of that tied to the environment to get a sense of what is working for the things around them, whether it be other people, plants, or sorry, not plants, but other people, animals, you know, and other things that are looking to be healthier for some other, for some reason. Now, there's been an evolution, obviously, from how these herbs were used traditionally, which is as a tea or maybe even as an alcohol-based tincture and into what we have today. And I, I want to talk a little bit about what's involved now in a, with a company like Thorn is a good example. You know, you just happen to be here and so I can I can pin you down on it. But when, when I was, you know, 19, I started studying herbal medicine and you went to a health food store and you bought tea. And that was the end of the story. Or you, you could maybe buy an alcohol-based tincture, you know. And now I would say, you know, more and more herbs are in a capsule form. More and more herbs are standardized, etc. So what's that about? What, what's the advantage of, of taking an herb in a, in a powder or a capsule versus, you know, the old teas and tinctures and things like that? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that comes down to it is, uh, at least for a lot of these herbs and you know where they're coming from you know these were these were things that were taken in at the level of food consistently daily for years right so you know if i look at curcumin um you know coming out of turmeric is a great example if you look at like you know the holy trinity of you know indian cooking it's you know ginger onions and turmeric right versus say ours maybe onions um you know garlic onions carrots and celery right so 
that aspect led to the medical system, you know, that was built or the material medical that was being built that would be taking grams of this at a time. Right. And, and for most of us, that's just really not the, an option. If you <laughs> so, lived in India, you might put curry on everything you ate. Right. Right. Three times a day, three you know, times 365 a day. days a year. There's at least a couple of grams of, of uh, turmeric powder going into your body. That's not going to happen. Or Roundup, Oregon grape powder would never probably make a, you know, a, a wonderful culinary um, option for anybody. But the nice thing about it from, you know, encapsulation and, and standardization is we can get to a level of the materials that have been shown in peer-reviewed work, you know, in, in different research settings to be successful at, you know, supporting or modifying, you know, our bodies, that we can then really control that extraction and make sure that we are getting a more potent extract, right? So taking a lot of the compound, a lot of the botanical product, you know, say it would be a tea, so like the leaves and some of the, you know, younger stems, and really condensing it down so that even though you're taking 250 milligrams, you know, it of this powder that was an extract, it really came from 25 grams of that powder of uh -huh. that you know plant, right? So now 250 standard, milligrams doesn't may not sound like a lot until you realize that's really concentrated, right? And then you know, taking it one step further, it may you know we can then standardize it, meaning like it's always going to have a set percentage of those actives, um, no matter what, and then really come in with something even more potent in, in a lot of ways, right? Because to get to those levels, um, you may be even adding having to add more you know, plant mass to get there or controlling it through specific ways of extraction. Right. So, you know, which there are a lot of them. You know, I've, I've got to say, I, w I was at, I've gone to a lot of herbal conferences. I love botanists and herbalists, et cetera. But I remember going to a conference once where the lecturer was saying, okay, for this condition, you need to have the person go out and gather the fresh herb at a certain time of the year, at a certain time of the day, and spend several hours a day making this product, you know, and then drinking this tea four times a day. And I thought, well, that's an ideal scenario, but it's not going to happen. Right, right. You know, I've got yeah. a busy businessman, a CEO in my practice who's got a medical condition and I want to use a botanical medicine. I would much rather use a standardized herbal extract where I know what they're getting and I know they're going to be compliant then I would say you've got to do all of this stuff with the fresh herb or it's not going to work. No, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And I mean, you know, that's the other part is the time consumption. And in, in a perfect world, you know, we could all do that and have that wonderful interaction with our environment and the green space and the time to kind of help support our mental health like we see. But the time consumption there of like, okay, I've got a two week window to harvest this, you know, and make it into what I want and drink it, you know, it's just, it's not sustainable. And I think that's why it's nice to have these ingredients being manufactured because some of that goes into it. They have a network of growers or a network of wild crafters that know all this and benefit from it, but it stays around for two years, you know, as an ingredient and probably another two and a half years, three years as a product. And, you know, you can use it all the time instead of having to wait for that window. So the scale of which you can use it is, you know, can 
considerably higher when you put in all these processes to allow for this to be something that's readily available for you in the potency you need standardized coming from you know the proper growing season even if it's seven months away from it when you get the new bottle now i i think i know what you're going to say about this but is it a challenging market out there is somebody who's involved in procuring clean herbal material that is what the supplier says what it is is that is that getting to be a bigger challenge and i and i'm kind of based that question on a book i just read called the business of botanicals which i i think anybody interested in this should read by dr armbrecht so i'm i'm wondering what your perspective is on that because i know that you spend a lot of time checking supplies and ingredients to see if they are what they say they are so what yeah what's out there a lot of different stuff, right? And, and you know, I, well, I'll start there, obviously. But I mean, also, you know, you mentioned that, that, and I would have to agree that is a great book. Definitely a good read for anybody interested in all of this. But yeah, I mean, it can be uh, downright hard. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. And then the way that even we look at processing, you know, and drying these things, like there's a lot that, you know, may not make it onto a specification in different countries, but it's something that doesn't mean that it's not something we should be looking at. Part of that then becomes, I think, the relationship that you have as, you know, with who's making it. And that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of people were looking at, you know, big partnerships that allowed for almost vertical integration in a way, right? Like, so that, you know, you find these quality individuals that have a good rapport with, you understand they are open to give you the documentation to understanding these things. Um, they have a relationship with the people that they get the raw material biomass from. They share that with you as well. Like, so it, it has to be a, a, a very open process. And a lot of times it's not necessarily has to be, you know, there's nothing pushing for this. There's legislation out there and obviously and a few other things, but, you know, it can be interesting. And I think the other part of it is, is it gets muddied by, some of these things that are thought to be the next big, the next big thing and in, in herbal quality, right? So, you know, when we looked at a few years ago, some of the things that came from like the, you know, the genetic fingerprinting and the, you know, mm-hmm. as a botanical yeah. ID, the DNA scan, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, you know, it's one of those where it, it's just, it's one more piece of data, but it's not the end all be all. And a lot of what came out of that in recently, and I was surprised to not see it as much you know, making its way through since the uh, other side of it, where people were thinking that these were all adulterated products made a lot of headway. A lot of that was erroneous and downright deceitful research, right? So it wasn't that the products were erroneous, which is what made the news, or, or that they were contaminated, is that the, the analytical methods that they used to determine that were flawed. Right. And those flaws were not necessarily talked about as much as they should have been, you know, in the peer reviewed setting. And so I think that that means that then you have to kind of put on the, you know, the investigator hat and kind of get a sense of all this. I mean, you know, if we look at botanical herbs in general, in different landscapes and environments, they can take on traits of other subspecies, um, for example, depending on the, the age of the plant, you know, genetically speaking. And you can get some variations that are, you know, no, so then it becomes, well, what is it? Which one is it? It's both, you know, so inherently there's going to be some flaws there. So, you know, that's where I think you can't, when you're designing quality botanical products, you have to take the approach of what I would call quality by design instead of quality by specification, meaning you have to ask these questions before you even 
go out and source to make sure that you're understanding what could go wrong with finding that herb right and so a lot exactly, of things right like you know and some of it is things that are as interesting as well what's the difference between glycerizer glabra which is licorice versus glycerizer chinensis which is another species of licorice you know and so if we look at some some of that there's some small changes and there's some differences but now all of a sudden you look at where is it grown naturally speaking and one of them is in eurasia you know going through like spain and you know into more the areas you know bordering into Pakistan and Turkey, those areas, and then the other one, you know, developed in China. And so as we, you know, move these around for commodities, it really starts to blur the line between the species, right? And so that's why I think identity is really important, you know, just as an example. Well, I think the take-home message, just to point out before we we go on our break here, is that if you as a consumer are going to buy botanical medicines make sure you work with a company that knows what they're doing. And what you're saying is knowing what you're doing is a lot more complicated than being able to open a book and go, well, here's a pretty picture of that plant. And if the person that's selling it to me says it's that plant, the leaves look familiar, so maybe that's it. Exactly. And and I'm not exaggerating when I say that that goes on. That No, you're not. I mean, that definitely could be some of the things that leave it. And then if you're looking at, you know, this, the, what we call a certificate of analysis that comes in, are people resting there, which can happen in certain arrangements, and that's quite all right. Or, you know, are they really testing everything out to make sure that that is the case? And so it's a very interesting thing because it does one of those where you're like, well, this grows in the ground. It should be easy. You know, <laughs> yeah. you just pick it. You, that's yeah. all you got to do. More to it than that. Let's take a a short break. Then when we come back, we'll answer some questions from our listeners. When it comes to your health, your body deserves the best. That's why Thorne invests in comprehensive testing, sourcing the highest quality ingredients, and creating the cleanest manufacturing processes that will provide unparalleled solutions for your health. It is this approach to quality and science that has earned Thorne the trust of more than 42,000 medical practitioners, as well as 100 plus Olympic professional and collegiate sports teams. It's also why Thorne is the only supplement manufacturer to be chosen by Mayo Clinic for collaborating on clinical research and educational content. Discover the quality and science that leads to a happier and healthier life with Thorne. Visit Thorne.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. And now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, are herbal medicines FDA approved? And I hear that a lot. I, you know, see that in mainstream articles about herbal medicine, botanical medicine. Implication is, well, they're not approved, so they're not as good as a drug. What, what would you say to that, Dr. Phipps? Well, you know, I say that, um, you know, there, it's a regulated field, right? Like, mm-hmm. so they, highly regulated. Yep, 
Exactly. Right. Like, and so we have a standard of what we call good manufacturing procedures. It's, that is dictated by the FDA. Right. So it's all in this giant, uh, you know, compendial book, but it's online for me. So I don't even know what to call it there uh, known as the, the CFR. Right. So 21 CFR is kind of where everything lives, including dietary supplements, which includes, you know, herbal extracts and herbs. You know, and one of the things that's also within there is even the identity of it and how we talk about it, right? So I can't, and you know, we brought up in the talk like the differences between Glyceriza glabra and Glyceriza chinensis, which is um, two different species of licorice. Now I better know my licorice source because there's something in in the United States called the Herbs of Commerce that if I call something licorice, it has to be Glyceriza glabra. It cannot be Glyceriza chinensis. So that is another layer of oversight that it's properly communicated to the end user exactly if there is a common name, what that has to be from a regulatory standpoint. So I think there is a lot of oversight and regulation on this, uh, more than people on, you know, know, I think. Now, wasn't there un- until like the 1920s or 30s, wasn't there a American Herbal Pharmacopeia or something I don't remember if that's exactly what it called, but it was something like a, a standard list of, of botanical medicines that most doctors would use in mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like any other culture, you know, that was the materia medica of our time. Right. So there was those things that were standardized for what you use for and what it was and how to, what it looks like when that kind of waned off. Then on the flip side, what's come up is there's even specific drug approvals for botanical drugs. And now, you know, it's, that is not necessarily uh, what you would expect a drug to be. There's actually on that list, you know, botanical extracts. And they go, and so, you know, the realm of what we think these are from herbs, say culinary um, need or food stuff to regulated supplement and medical um, utilizations, there's a spectrum there, but it's all, I would say the dietary supplement and the botanical drug are all arising from the same kind of data stream around safety and efficacy. Now, isn't the main difference that involves FDA approval that you can make drug claims if it's FDA? So FDA approval, I think what people are getting at is they're saying, can you say this is good for this condition? So Exactly. When you, you know, hear that, to me, it's not necessarily a regulatory component. It becomes, well, it's gone through what's called an, you know, an NDA or a new drug application. But if you look at the herbs that are out there, part of that is going to be safety data. Part of that's going to be efficacy data. And so there is that groundwork and framework in there. And then if it's a new herb, you're going to have things like a new dietary ingredient that would come around, which is, you know, putting all of that into the uh, framework of why you can use it as a dietary supplement. And that has to have the safety data behind it. And so there's no real difference, like to your point, other than really just the marketed claim and some of the ways that we talk about it, condition versus structure function. What you, what you can say about it. And I will say that it's a, it's a problem in the sense that if, if a company wants to bring a botanical medicine out as a drug, make drug claims about it, say this herb is good to treat hypertension, right? That's a big no-no in the supplement industry. But let's say you found an extract of, of hibiscus and you said, my hibiscus extract can be used to treat hypertension. Well, it could take you 10 years and how many million dollars to be able to come up with the research to be able to make that claim? 
it's yeah. an expensive process right? yeah still i mean even though it's somewhat streamlined as that botanical drug you know pipeline it's still expensive you know and it's still one of those things that you're getting into a level of you know outside of the structure and function and i think that's the hard part for people to kind of splice where there is realms of what we are doing and how an herb will work within you know that structure and function landscape that is effective and can be seen within these within the clinical work but it's not you know as something as selective as targeting one or two different molecular targets in a way that we expect a drug to work the potency of it is a different component as well right and so i think that's kind of in the spectrum of that what's the difference between an herb and a botanical one of our our listeners ask you can look at it a few different ways i think you know uh that's a great question but you know if i everyone's probably gonna have a different answer the way i you know would think about it is you know the botanical tends to be more of a technical word you know when looking at it versus an herb um some people may use it to reference maybe what they have in their kitchen um versus what they think is more dietary supplement or medically related right so there's that air of it's not going to be in my camp pantry for cooking my lasagna but it'll be in there to help me support proper lipid metabolism and that, but that's hard too though right because then if you look at things like rosemary it's a kitchen herb but it definitely has some botanical qualities or botanical medicine qualities but you know i think probably the main way to look at that is just the the level of broadness around what an herb may be or become or be called versus the way that people look at a botanical. So I think my general impression is that herb is a very broad term. And when you say botanical, you're getting a little bit more specific, you know, that. Right. The refinements yeah. there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's a little bit more refined, but they're used interchangeably a lot, don't you think? Oh, they definitely are. They definitely are. So Anna Maria wants to know, who do I go to to find out what botanical supplements are right for me? So, you know, that's like, I think she's getting to at the ads on TV. Ask yeah. your doctor if this is right for you. <laughs> exactly. But you don't have, say, you know, an ad that says, ask your doctor if rosemary is right for me. Exactly. Like, and how and how and do that, people know? <laughs> there's going to be a subset of those, right? So yeah. I think the, the easiest way to look for those things um, is, you know, looking for in your area integrative practitioners that are going to be uh, well-versed in the differences of those supplements and how to utilize them. Depending on your area, this could be uh, an area where scope of practice could be a naturopath, but it also be someone like an integrated functional medicine doc that, uh, you know, has spent a good chunk of time really trying to understand it. And the key point that I'm trying to make on that there is you want to go to somebody that has had some level of training to understand some of the nuances here, because, you know, there's a lot of differences in the potencies of botanical supplements, the proper use of them over time, like, you know, there's these things that we just spent a good chunk of time going over, even on the quality side, that this person's asking on your behalf. And so they're going to have that ability to really make sure that uh, what you're getting is going to have an effect like you're expecting. So, you you know, you're a naturopath. You've got, I don't know what you call it, a doctor of naturopathy degree. And how, how much of your training involved herbal medicine and and by that i mean going into the constituents of the herbs and how they're extracted where they come from is is that a big part of your training you know it actually was like and i was a little bit more geeky about it so i spent a little bit more time on all of the uh the i would say electives that could be done there but in the core didactics there's definitely two three you know years of botanical medicine look and two, then, three years yeah yeah and then diving deep and that's outside of the clinic right inside the clinic we learn more with uh you know our our docs that are practicing and we're learning from 
And then there's uh, the electives that would probably put on for me another year or so, which was really looking at different materia medicas and also what we would call pharmacognosy. So we had a pharmacognosy class as well that ran into the constituent classes, what they may do or expect to do, right? So that could be things like the sesquiterpenoids, you know, or, you know, in some of the bittering agents or more of the volatile agents and what we expect them to do, what plants that they found in. So, you know, it dove a bit deeper, but that kind of, I think, you know, going at least a year or two and getting an understanding of it, you know, I think is is a good thing. And there's a lot of integrative docs out there that aren't NDs that have spent that time or even longer really looking at that. So I don't necessarily think it's, you know, one look at this versus the other makes that sense where, but those types of docs that really put the time in, uh, regardless of the, uh, you know, it's an ND and MD or the like really is what's going to be uh, meaningful. So I, I went to med school for four years, undergraduate four years, medical school four years, three years of residency in family practice. Do you know how much time was devoted to botanical medicine? Probably not much. <laughs> Zero. Yeah. You know, uh, the only time that was devoted to that was in the course on toxicology. Right, which is like, these are the things, these are the ways that herbs poison you. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the things that has led to some of these questions and comments that we're seeing, right? Is like, that's kind of the landscape that people have had, have been listening to and for a while and it's changing. But I know how long have you studied herbs outside of that? Uh, years. For, I mean, I've taken courses and gone to class, you know, to conferences and, and I've got a whole library of on botanical medicine and I look things up. Every day I look things up and right. have been for 40 years. Right. So I think, you know, and that's the type of provider that I think is the best, right, to, to work through this because everything's changing. But if there's a love for that type of thing and a real interest, it's going to come through and you're going to get a good product recommendation. I will say in Germany, the botanical medicine is a part of regular medical school training. Right. Yeah. And they, for a long time, you know, even had commissions on it, right? So yep. you could go and look at it through the government. So, yep. you know, there's a lot out there. But I think, you know, again, that common thread is, is, you know, whether it be in the formal training or spending the time outside of that formal realm, really getting a sense of what these things can do, how to dose them, what to look for for quality, like that all comes through for patient satisfaction. Now, you you mentioned some chemicals that are in different herbs, sesquiterpenes, for example. That brings up a question that one of our listeners asked. What's the difference between a botanical versus an extract? And I would add versus a phytochemical. Great. So, you know, I think it's going to be these layers of refinement, right? So I think a botanical is going to be the herb or the herb part, right? So it might be ground up turmeric. Like so we can go with turmeric, right? So ground up turmeric, that's going to be where everything lives, but you don't know how much is in there, right? Then you're going to get to a botanical extract. Now these can be either standardized. So you have a set compound or two that is what is being tested every time they make it, or it can be just a higher potency material um, where you're getting, you know, numerous grams of the herb per milligram. Um, but that's still going to be more refined than just the botanical. And then finally, the phytochemical will be one chemical refined all the way out. So if we took the turmeric example, I can have the botanical with the ground turmeric root, the botanical extract with, you know, turmeric root extract standardized to curcuminoids. And then I can have curcumin as the phytochemical, right? One of them that I would then say this much curcumin. 
but it can be, a, I've seen that argument be a little bit deceptive in that people would say a, a traditional herbalist, for example, and you know, not to knock them at all, I, I admire them and studied with them for years, but they would say, well, you know, you're better off just eating ground turmeric. I've actually heard Dr. Andy Wilde say that exact thing. You'd be better off eating a tablespoon of turmeric powder every day. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. Like, who is going to, have you ever tasted a tablespoon of turmeric powder? Yeah, like, worse than the cinnamon challenge that? right there, yeah. I tell you. <laughs> it's, so. it's like, that's what you need to do, a tablespoon of turmeric every day. And I don't recommend taking a supplement. And I just think, well, wait a minute. When you take something like curcumin phytosome, right, which is mixing curcumin with, with the substance that enhances absorption, then you actually get more of it into your bloodstream. Right. So consistently, right? And fewer I think milligrams. So if you just look at the number of milligrams of curcumin, you can go, well, that's less than you'd get in a tablespoon of turmeric, but you'll get more into your bloodstream from that particular preparation. Right. Yep. And I think, I mean, in a hundred percent, I think that's the big thing is these are why we look at these extracts, right? Because it, and then enhance them like with the, the phytosomes to, you know, make sure that we're getting a consistent amount of that, you know, phytochemical, you know, chemical or phytochemicals, uh, depending on the plant, um, you know, into where it needs to go. You know, one of the interesting things though, and I think this is, you know, to be determined, Determined is that, you know, as we look at that, I think there's going to also be at some points where you maybe want all of that stuff to stay in the GI tract, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you still want it to be a high quality and you don't just want to take a tablespoon of it and chug it down, right? Um <laughs> Because it may have heavy metals in it. Exactly. Or, you know, or it's not even, or it's adulterated or it has benzopyrenes from drying too long. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I think that's the, the big thing to be said is that the most of what we're looking at is when you start to get that phytochemical into the bloodstream, that's when you start to see the things that you're taking it for really come through. Right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, so if we look at all the literature that they do clinical, you know, work on in the peer-reviewed space like that's what you're seeing when something is saying it's effective at these doses in the study it's because they can you know see it go into the body right and a lot mm -hmm. of you know and so you'll see those that that whole story come through and the, in the past i think all we had was what people said their subjective experience exactly. yeah i took this and i felt better you know and now we've got better ways to study things Right. And also, I think we have a better understanding of, okay, well, you know, that might not work for it, right? Because if I look at maybe why that worked for that individual, like we can go back to, are you make, are you one of those people? Like, and we'll take, we can take berberine as a great example that just happens to get berberine into your system better. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of them, right? So that's yeah. why people have to take a lot of berberine. It's an amazing yeah. ingredient. But if you look at the doses, typically we're looking at 1.5 grams of that pure compound a day, right? Mm -hmm. So how are you getting that from hundred milligrams of coptis root? I don't know. Right. But yeah, that, yep. you know, but I think that's again, the reasons why to your point, having it as that quality source and that ability to have consistent dosing over time is really where you're going to get, you know, that differential. So that's that brings us to the last question, I think, which is Liz asked us, how do I know if the source quality is good enough that it will be absorbed well? So uh, that seems to have a couple of different parts to it. Uh, and I think we've alluded a little bit to that, but maybe you can talk a, a little bit about how those two things are or are not connected. The way I look at it is, is the product designed well so that it can have the ability to be absorbed? There's maybe one way to look at it, but that doesn't necessarily move into the source. I think the source quality is important because you're wanting 
that consistency so that when it is absorbed, you know, and all of these will have the ability to be absorbed um, at some level, you know, it's consistent. You know that that is there. I think what ends up happening, you know, with sourcing is that, you know, you may get an ingredient that is, say, a, you know, a very standard powder, like you would say, just a, you know, ground up tea in a capsule. You don't really know the waxing and waning of some of those ingredients that are in there, those phytochemicals that are in there, right? And so you may think it's because then that is a due to absorption, but really what it's, it is due to is that there's just inconsistent levels in that product for you to uh, take in, right? So I think that's maybe the intersect there where, but formulation wise, we can do things to enhance absorption, you know, and, and I think that's the other part to this, right? Like is the phytosomes. Exactly, exactly. And so I think that's a really interesting way to think about the dichotomy there is that there's probably great high, higher quality, you know, turmeric extracts out there, but they're still going to have absorption issues for the majority of people using them. So we can supplement or reduce the need to take that ingredient in, in high amounts by, you know, doing something to alter how it's getting into our body. So you, you, Briefly touched on on something that I'd like to end with, which is the notion of what else is in there besides the herb. Fillers are pretty common. And the question I would have for you that's sort of a corollary of what this person's asking is, does everything that's in a product have to be listed on the label? No. Uh, or they, Can you say that again? I would say no, but I'll go no. back and say everything that's in the ingredients that's being used doesn't have to be on the label. Right. So, but right. if I'm putting, if I'm putting it in there as a formula, then yes. But I think that's where the gray part comes in for a lot of people, right? Because it still says that ingredient, but is that ingredient a five to one, a one to one, a mm-hmm. 10 to one, a 15 to one? Is it got, you know, lactose as a, you know, lactose. Yep. You know, like those things where like you might have that um, or, you know, so I think there's, that's the hard part, right? Because that's what's not on the label. And so, and, you know, that's the part of the quality system, though, that needs to be, you know, upheld, at least, you know, from my aspect of to make sure that you're getting what you're expecting, you have to have that ability to really toe the line on, no, this is how, what we mean by a high quality botanical supplement. Well, I do have people that tell me, you know, I, I took this herb like rosemary and I reacted to it and yet I can eat rosemary as an herb in my food and I don't react to it. And so I think what you're saying is, is buyer beware because there may be something in that product you didn't know about. Right, that, exactly. And there's no obligation to to put that on the label. Nope, you're right. So so you you got to go with a company that you trust. Exactly, exactly. All right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Stephen, thanks again. No, thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. And I always like to ask, where can listeners go if they want to find out what you're up to, what you're doing? Nice. So, I mean, for the most part, you know, that we'll be right. I usually write some blogs on thorn.com. You know, you can definitely see all the new products that are coming out over time there as well. We've got a lot of interesting stuff. And then on, um, on the social media side, LinkedIn. Great. Well, again, thanks, Dr. Stephen Phipps, the Chief Innovation Officer at Thorn. Health Tech. That was really an excellent discussion. And thank you all for listening. And we hope that you'll tune in in the future. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Health. 
You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting Thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.